Open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians 5, 22 and 23 is where we find this list from the Apostle Paul known as the fruit of the Spirit. And Paul is writing to the churches in the region known as Galatia. And at the end of his letter, this letter that is centered on freedom and the sufficiency of Jesus, at the end of the letter, he gives us this contrast. He contrasts the works of the flesh with the fruit of the Spirit. And we hear about this collection of fruit, uh, which really is this collection of the character of Jesus. It's something that the Holy Spirit desires to cultivate in the soil of your soul and the soil of my soul. So here's the fruit of the Spirit. Paul says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I'm intentionally reading them slowly because <laughs> oftentimes we like, love, joy, peace, blah, 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 it's like one word. Stop and like hear the fruit of the Spirit. And Paul says, against these things, there, there is no law. Now, some of these traits, especially the first three, there's nine in total. Some group them in triads, first three, second three, third three. Some of these traits are big and beautiful, and I would say widely embraced. Like love, right? how many songs have been written about love? Joy peace. You're like, yeah, that's awesome. This world needs love and joy and peace. And then it keeps going. And if we're being honest, the list kind of tapers off further from our cultural preferences. And it gets oddly specific. These next three, patience, right, that Megan spoke of last week, kindness, goodness, so, so these three, these middle three of the nine, this is my phrase, but they're kind of the middle children of the fruit of the Spirit family. No offense to middle children. You are loved beyond belief. But the middle child of the middle children is kindness. Kindness. I think we have a very complicated relationship with kindness that sometimes maybe we don't often think about. Let me explain what I mean. So on the one hand, I think most of us admire kindness. Like, ah, kindness, that's good. We admire it, we like it, we, most of us appreciate kindness, and maybe most of all, we want to teach kindness to our kids. Right? In fact, as someone who is married to an Olympia School District employee, I am aware that the OSD recently adopted student outcomes that drive the district strategic planning. So they named six student outcomes. You can read it on their website. I won't give you all six. Um, here are a couple of them. Here's outcome number two, is have the academic and life skills to pursue their individual career, civic, and educational goals. It's a good outcome. Outcome six, be critical thinkers who contribute to and collaborate with our local, global, and natural world. But here's outcome number one. This is the very first outcome that they name. 
the very first student outcome of the Olympia School District that drives their district strategic planning is that our students will be compassionate and kind. So kindness is even valued in the public school system of our city, so much so that they would make it a student outcome. So it's admired. We all want this for our kids. Anybody grow up watching Mr. Rogers on TV? But here's the catch. The catch is, is that actually the systems of our culture don't reinforce that at all. In fact, it's quite the opposite. So John Steinbeck is no theologian. He wrote The Grapes of Wrath, East of Eden. In his book, The Cannery, in Cannery Row, one of his characters has this musing. It says, It has always seemed strange to me the things we admire in men, men or women. Kindness and generosity, openness, honesty, understanding and feeling are the concomitants, which are naturally associated signs, of failure in our system. And those traits that we detest Sharpness, greed, acquisitiveness, which means like hoarding, meanness, egotism, and self-interest are the traits of success. And while men admire the quality of the first, they love the produce of the second. So we're like, yeah, we want our kids to be kind. But then like our whole system values what sharpness, greed, hoarding, meanness, egoism, self-interest, like... The fruit of that is what we actually deem to be success in our system and culture. Do you see the conflict? So in a dog-eat-dog world, many will say kindness will get you crushed. So like, yeah, Mr. Rogers is good for kindergartners, but come on, kindness gets you nowhere, and you need to be strong, you need to be independent, you need to be macho, you need to be cruel at times, you need to be cutthroat. At some point in time, you will need to learn to fight, to get even, and look out for number one. Otherwise, you just won't succeed. So do you see this, the tension? Again, we may admire kindness, but we actually love the taste of our ruthless pursuit of success. And so you just got to step on people sometimes to get where you want to go. So in my opinion, this is what makes the fruit of the Spirit so important, so valuable, especially in our American world, because God is committed to kindness. God is committed to kindness to you. And he's committed to kindness through us. And in a kingdom where Jesus Christ is Lord. Right, that's, our, that's our slogan. That's our gospel. Jesus Christ is Lord. In a kingdom where Jesus Christ is Lord, kindness is actually king. And his way works differently. So I know that's pretty abstract, it's pretty theoretical. So to kind of help us ground this conversation of kindness tonight, I want to share an Old Testament story. It's an Old Testament story from the life of David, uh, one of Israel's great kings. So if you have your Bible, you can go ahead and flip back from Galatians 5. Why don't you flip over to 2 Samuel chapter 9. I want to share a story about kindness. 
hopefully will help maybe shape our understanding a little bit differently. Uh, if you can't find 2 Samuel, it's a hard one to find, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel. Here's a story about David and Mephibosheth, who are actually a very most unlikely pair. 2 Samuel 9, verse 1. David said, Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? So I realize what I've just done is dropped you into the middle of 2 Samuel. <laughs> Whoa, haven't read that in a while. A little context may be helpful. Let me back things up for you then. In the storyline of the people of Israel, there came a point when Israel, when the people of Israel, they wanted a king because all the other nations had a king. Even though God wanted to be their king, they wanted a king, so God gave them a king. The first king in the land of Israel, anyone know his name? Saul. And while Saul started out well, he didn't finish well. And so in judgment, God took away his anointing and named a new king. And the new king was David. Many may know David from his childhood, David and Goliath exploits. Now, uh, one of the features that made this royal transition unique had to do with the fact that David was not Saul's son not in his family line. And in ancient Middle Eastern culture, like that's how kingly succession took place, was that kingship was handed down from father to son. And so Saul, who was king, the first king, he had a family, he had sons. One of his sons was named Jonathan, but that's not who God named to be the next king. And this may be more context than you bargained for, but I'm going to give it to you anyway. Here's kind of the backstory. You can go to the next slide. 1 Samuel 16, the Lord uses the prophet Samuel to anoint David as king. Chapter 18, David becomes covenant friends with Jonathan, Saul's son. Chapter 19 of 1 Samuel, Saul, in his deep jealousy, tries to kill David. And in chapter 20, Jonathan, who's Saul's son, warns David about his father's plans. So like everything about this kingly transition is odd and out of place. Saul is king, he gets disqualified, but rather than Jonathan being named king in his place, David gets anointed, Saul gets jealous, tries to kill him, but Saul's son Jonathan, rather than fuming and being jealous, he actually becomes David's best friend and he is his loyal companion and he warns David whenever his dad tries to threaten his life. And David and Jonathan actually have this deep covenantal friendship. Maybe the best description of their friendship is here. Uh, next slide. 1 Samuel 18. It says, as soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. There's a lot that could be talked about, these symbols of friendship that were given from Jonathan to David, but 
needless to say, this friendship runs deep. And it runs against the conventional kind of kingly transition lines. So enough backstory. The story we're reading, 2 Samuel chapter 9, David is now king. He's been king for a while now. And here's the thought that crosses David's mind as king. Is there anyone left in the house of Saul that I may show kindness to for Jonathan's sake? And there's that word that we're talking about tonight, kindness. And we're not told why. We're not told all the reasons why, uh, what prompts it. But evidently, David starts remembering, and he remembers Saul. But more importantly, he remembers Jonathan, his friend from old, at this point in time, both Saul and Jonathan are dead. They died the same day in a battle. And David starts reminiscing in this random moment on this random day, years down the line. And David's like, is there someone that I can find from that family to show kindness to? And here's where kindness shows up on the scene. This first verse, verse 1 of 2 Samuel 9. David wants to show kindness to the house of Saul on behalf, on behalf of Jonathan. So maybe this is helpful in our pursuit of kindness, in our understanding of kindness. First thing is that kindness has a memory. Kindness has a memory. So in this case, David thinks back in his story, he thinks back to the day when his friend Jonathan was kind to him and loved him and was faithful to him and, and saved his life, literally, when his father wanted to kill him. Oftentimes, Jonathan gave David time to escape. So on this day, this seemingly random act of kindness is not random. It is rooted in memory. It's rooted in the kindness that was shown to David from Jonathan. And that's why he says that in verse 1. But when I talk about kindness having a memory, it could be misleading. You could read that story and think, well then, kindness is repayment of kindness. Kindness is, kindness is something that you show to people who are good to you. So if I want to be kind, I'm going to find maybe, let me think back to someone else who is kind to me, or let me think back to an ancestor of someone who is kind to me. And so kindness is the repayment of that, to which I would say a hearty no. And while verse 1 indicates that what David is doing here is he thinks about kindness, he's tying it to Jonathan. He says that in verse 1, is there anyone in the house of Saul that I can show kindness to for Jonathan's sake? There's another way he frames it the more he tells the story. Can you put the, yeah, put this next, the, the, the verse back up here. So he says that in verse 1, that he's doing it to show kindness for Jonathan's sake, but then there's this whole interaction. He's trying to figure out, is there anyone left? And he doesn't really know, and so he calls Ziba. Ziba knows. He was a servant back in those days. David doesn't even know who he is. Are you Ziba? Yeah, I am. I'm your servant. He asked the question again, but when he asked the question again, he says, is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of who? Of God to him. He says, I want to show the kindness of God. 
And as Ziba gets brought in before King David, and they go through this whole exchange, we finally get closer to the root of David's kindness. And yes, Jonathan was a great friend, and he was a soul-knit friend who was kind to David, saved his life. But now, as David is engaging this, the memory goes deeper, the memory goes further. David does not just want to show the kindness of Jonathan, but David wants to express the kindness of God. And when I say that kindness has a memory, sure, I'm referring to maybe people in your past who have been kind to you, but here's what I believe is the deepest memory and the deepest root of kindness. It's actually the kindness of God expressed to you. And this becomes the root of kindness for the follower of Jesus, is the memory of a kind God. Here's the goal. Here's the opportunity is that God wants to cultivate his very life in us, his character in us, his kindness in us, so that what flows out of your life and my life is actually an echo and a memory of what God is like in the world, the very character and nature of God. Do you know that God has been kind to you? And that, I believe, holds for every person, every situation. Friends, enemies, the memory of God's kindness is the root of this which we'll talk more about as we keep going. Let's keep moving. So not only does kindness have a memory, but also kindness asks different questions. I love the use of questions in this story. Again, David asks the first question. He's just asking out loud in general. Is there anyone from the house of Saul that I can show kindness to? And then Ziba gets brought in because he knows the details. And David once again asks Ziba, is there anyone left in the house of Saul that I can show kindness to? And so as he talks with Ziba, you have this engagement that takes place. And while we could analyze the content of David's question, I think it's also worth noticing not just what David asks, but what David doesn't ask. Again, the cultural framework of this era and culture and society runs deep, and we're removed. We're Americans. We're living in Olympia many, many years later. But typically, if you can put your back, yourself back into that culture, typically, if a king is asking the question about the offspring of the prior king. The reason that question is being asked is not because they want to show kindness. The reason you would ask about the offspring of a former king would be what? Yeah. I want to find out, is there anyone left still alive that I can kill my rival? that I can get rid of any further threats. I want to make sure that I'm secure and that I'm safe. Typically, the questions about prior kings wasn't a question of kindness because they didn't want to have, in a matter of time, have a revolt on their hands to restore the crown to the rightful owner. Kindness asks different questions. David asks different questions. David could be asking these questions. Who's my threat? How do I protect my power? How do I stomp out my enemies? 
How do I obliterate my rivals? How do I maintain my authority? How do I climb the ladder? How do I look out for number one in a dog-eat-dog world? Those are the questions that we've been trained to ask. Kindness asks these questions. Who is there left around me to bless? Is there anyone I could possibly show God's kindness to? Do you see the questions are radically different? One set of questions is about protecting the kingdom of me. The other questions are about the kingdom of God. Author Henry Nouwen offers these questions for us to ask. Did I offer peace today? Did I bring a smile to someone's face? Did I say words of healing? Did I let go of my anger and resentment? Did I forgive? Did I love? It's a different set of questions that the kingdom of God runs on. And maybe this is the appropriate time to say this. Um, Maybe there's a need to clarify. When I talk about kindness, when David asks about kindness, when the New Testament, when Paul includes kindness in the list of the fruit of the Spirit, he's not just talking about being nice. There's a difference between being kind and being nice. And a lot of church people have figured out how to be nice. But there's a difference between nice and kind. And I'm not the first one who's kind of teased this out. Nice is self-centered behavior, is a self-centered behavior pattern where you're acting in a pleasing manner to be a nice person and get people to like you. Niceness is often about appearances and what is done to someone's face, regardless of what is said and done behind someone's back. So you know a lot of nice people like, oh hi, it's good to see you. Oh yeah, great to see you. And then they walk away and they're like, oh my word. And then right? and they, you talk and they talk. That's nice, polite, facade. Again, oftentimes Christians do this well. Hey, bro, hey, sis, good to see you. Ah, As soon as they turn away. Kindness is an other-centered behavior pattern where you're acting in the best interest of others out of a sense of love, empathy, and compassion. Kindness is a genuine, compassionate response to the other. Another way of splitting it out is kindness. Go to the next slide. Oh, sorry, I didn't have it up there. Kindness is rooted in love. Niceness is often rooted in fear. Kindness is rooted in strength. Niceness is often rooted in weakness. The call of the fruit of the Spirit is not just to be nice to people, but kindness. Last part of the story, maybe the best part of the David story, This is the reminder that kindness is potent and powerful. Let's go back to 2 Samuel 9. So David asks his question to Ziba. Is there someone? Verse 3, Ziba replies, Yes, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? Ziba said to the king, He's in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. 
So again, Ziba is the one who's in the know. He knows that Jonathan does have a son who's still alive. He knows that this son is living in exile in this town of Lodabar in the care of Machir. At this point, we still don't know his full name, but we know that he's crippled. And the king sends word to have him delivered from his exile to Jerusalem. Verse 6. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth! And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? So by verse 6, this meeting is set. We finally learn the name officially of the exiled son of Jonathan. It's Mephibosheth. It's actually a nickname if you kind of read through other parts of the Old Testament, especially 1 Chronicles 9. His real name is Merib Baal. So why does he have this nickname? Well, the, the, the root of the name Mephibosheth is shame, the Hebrew word shame. They came up with a nickname for this shamed son. I'll Englishize it. We'll call him Mephibosheth, which doesn't sound like a nice nickname at all. But you come to understand Mephibosheth's story, and you realize maybe why he would be given the nickname of the shame boy. Mephibosheth first shows up in 2 Samuel chapter 4, where we learn why he's crippled. 2 Samuel 4.4 says, Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. So the root of his injury and the root of his shame goes back to the day when his father died and his grandfather died in battle. And because of all the commotion of what was happening that day, the caretaker of Mephibosheth got spooked and ran. And because of the upheaval in her hurry and haste of running, she drops him. She's scared for her life. She's scared for the well-being of this boy. And she drops him and he gets injured and he becomes crippled. And he's a five-year-old. And now he's lame in both feet. And the rest of his life, he carries this name and this shame. And so for his safety, he is sent into exile. He's sent to the town of Lodabar, which literally in Hebrew means no word. And that's not where you want to get sent for your time away. Now I can't walk. Now I can't fend for myself. My family is dead. I'm being exiled to the place of no word. The guy can't ever catch a break. And so now after all this time, he hears, oh yeah, David the king wants to see you. And so you read the story and he comes into the presence of the king and he's just a wee bit nervous, as you would be when the new king invites you to come hang out for lunch. And so when he comes into the presence of the king, David's like, don't fear, Mephibosheth. Don't fear. 
And the man of shame gets carried into the presence of the king, expecting the worst, expecting more pain, expecting punishment, maybe even expecting to die. And instead, what does he find? He finds kindness. He finds pursuit. He finds restoration. And he meets kindness face to face. And right off the bat, David reveals his intentions. He says, don't fear, I'm going to show you kindness. I'm going to show you covenant love. And I'm going to restore you all the land of your grandfather. I'm going to offer you a place at my table. Man, there's restoration and then there's like restoration. Like your life is safe. You don't have to be in no word anymore to come to Jerusalem and instead of being killed or chastised or further shamed he comes into the presence of the king that day and he is loved and his life is forever changed because of kindness verse 9 and the king called Ziba Saul's servant and said to him all that belong to Saul and to all his house I've given to your master's grandson and you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat but Mephibosheth your master's grandson shall always eat at my table now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants because of God's kindness David finds an enemy to love This is not just a love and a kindness that restores, but a love that reverses. And there's this beautiful end scene, verse 13. Oh, I didn't finish reading the passage, did I? Let's hop to verse 13. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. And it's this this complete (laughs) transformation in the life of Mephibosheth, this complete reversal. Next slide. He's living in a new location. He's living in a new city. He's moved from Lodabar to Jerusalem. He has a new identity. He has new privilege. Instead of fearing the king, he gets to enjoy the king. Instead of cowering, he gets to have feasting. And his day is marked by a new routine. And he's invited to the place where he doesn't belong. All because of kindness. God's kindness, Jonathan's kindness, but God's kindness. Kindness that endures, pursues, initiates, restores, and reverses. And again, I just want to say, in a world that has kind of like, I think there has been a renaissance of kindness. Again, our school's, like it, and they're like, yeah, there's, we need kindness in our world. It's so cruel these days. But still, I think deep down, we think that kindness is just weak. It's nice. It's admirable. But it's kind of milk toast, wimpy. When I grow up, I want to be kind. No. And yet... Kindness. Again, I think kindness is an expression of love because all the fruit of the Spirit are an expression of love, but that kindness is one of the strongest forces in the world. And you see how it transforms someone's life like a Mephibosheth 
It's potent. It is powerful. Do you not know followers of Jesus, seekers of Jesus, have you not heard that kindness is God's currency of change? Kindness is God's power that actually accomplishes repentance. And we can be dismissive about it, but God says, no, this is what I lead with. Think about this. Think about sin. Think about how hard it is to change sin. Think about what in the world could possibly be strong enough to move a sinful, broken person to repent and change. What is strong enough to transform a hardened, sinful heart? And the answer the Bible says is kindness. Romans 2.4, if you don't believe me. Paul says, or do, you not, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? This is what leads the human heart to change. Not just God's stick. Not just God's judgment. Not just his wrath or his threats. But we change, Paul says, because of the kindness of God. And it's his kindness that leads us to repent. That is potent. Potent to change a human heart. And potent to transform God's world. Again, kindness is God's currency of change. And it's a kindness that is fully and forever shown in the person of Jesus. I think Tom read this one already. Titus 3. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. So the the birth of Jesus, the the appearance of Jesus for him to save us, the birth of Jesus is the full coming of kindness into the world in human flesh. Ephesians 2.7 says, Paul talks about the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And one of Jesus' more famous sayings when he talks about my yoke is easy and my burden is light, that word easy, it's a form of this same word of kindness. He says that my yoke is kind. So my friends, in a world that actually values the results of sharpness and greed and hoarding, and we'll leave the kindness to the kids. God flips the script, and he reveals the power of kindness to change. And I wonder if the deep work that we get to do to see the cultivation of kindness in our lives has to do with spending some time remembering, having memory of. Kindness has a memory May we be reminded of the kindness of God to you. And maybe I invite you even tonight to spend a few seconds thinking about that. Maybe some time this week. Where has God been kind to you?
Where have you seen his kindness? Which leads us then to maybe ask some different questions than, how do I kill my rivals? And we can ask, is there anyone left that I can show the kindness of God to this week? Jesus, son of David, have mercy on us. You are so kind. We deserve death, separation, judgment, wrath. And the kindness of God appeared in you, Jesus. That you would come and rescue and save us. God, we're all, in some ways, little Mephibosheths marked with a ton of brokenness and shame. And it's because of your kindness that you've carried us to the table. And you've just been kind to us. And you've forgiven our sin through Jesus. You've poured out your Holy Spirit upon us. You've given us the inheritance You've seated us with Christ in heavenly places. You've been so kind. And yet I often forget, and I'm just obsessed about getting rid of my rivals. So would you in your kindness meet us here again? Would any person here who has deep shame, anyone here who has deep pain, anyone here who has deep sin, kind again tonight Jesus we thank you for the immeasurable we can't can't count them the immeasurable riches of your grace in kindness toward us we praise you thank you may your kindness continue to change us with potency and power Put us in touch with your kindness again tonight, Lord Jesus, that changes us from the inside out. We pray this in the name of our Savior, our kind Savior, Jesus. Amen.